Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we welcome Eugene Robinson, lead singer of Oxbow, Whipping Boy, Blackface, that's just to name a few. Eugene, how are things? Eh, things are going better than expected, not as bad as I would have believed. Um, I'm doing all right. Got back from a run, just finished online jiu-jitsu, had dinner, um, and I'm here with you. Awesome. I want to take you way back. When Jello Biafra noticed that what you were doing in terms of the fuck the government-like content with your first band, Whipping Boy, did you think this could lead to an important coalition in music and lead to some actual change? Or did this really ever let that comment get into your mind? No. I, I, I don't know that I ever really honestly and seriously believed in the possibility of music heralding any kind of political change. Um, and, I, you know, if, if to be frankly perfectly honest, my first exposure to the Dead Kennedys, um, I would have to say, was Holiday in Cambodia, which I didn't think was especially political. And then the second song of theirs I ever heard was Too Drunk to Fuck, which, of course, was not very political at all. I, didn't, I don't think I heard back in New York, uh, California, Uberales, until maybe it was a third or fourth song. And at the point where, where I heard it, um, it didn't have any special resonance to me because the jokes were sort of inside the fence. I mean, I knew Jerry Brown as a guy who dated Linda Ronstadt, but New York is such a kind of island on, in and of itself that uh, a lot of the, the, you know, a lot of the, the cutting quips that are part of that song were just completely lost on me. And and as any New Yorker would understand, not only just lost on me, but not of tremendous interest to me. Um, So, you you know, I spent some time a few years earlier with some folkies. Like I used to, was a lifeguard at a kid's camp where uh, that was uh, sponsored by uh, uh, Pete Seeger. And, um, and, you know, he would come by a couple of times a month and, you know, sing some, some, you know, Woody Guthrie protest songs. And, uh, yeah, it seemed pretty kind of nice, but sort of toothless to me. I think the first time I, I ever heard music that I thought could incite people to toward making some sort of political change was probably uh, The Clash, strangely enough, right? Um, not the Sex Pistols, you know, not the Ramones, but the, uh, the Clash. And, and it was a quality of commitment in their voices that, that made me listen, and, as well as word choices, you know, the whole white riot thing. It's like, okay, what is this a reference to? It's re- re- uh, the riots in Brixton. So Brixton, so why, and, and of course that was, I thought, real, it, it, it educate. it's like, it's one thing to tell me to eat spinach because it's good for me, and it's another thing to invite me to eat spinach. And I always felt like the dead Kennedys were telling me to eat spinach, and the Clash sort of invited me to eat spinach. So, Do you feel like the older you get, the less you want to have politics involved in your music? Um, I, 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 no. I, I, it's been a great constancy. I find I, I, I distrust people who mix, with the exception of Billy Bragg, who I, I felt walked it like he talked it, I feel it's a real it's a real difficult thing to do to maintain a political ideal or ideology behind a microphone, you know. And that's even if you don't mix in bass, drums, and guitar, um, because a different thing happens. Like I'll give you an example. It, it's it's you know I've done a couple of spoken word tours, and you know it's it took a Rob Denadian act of will when you're standing behind a microphone. And by accident, or maybe on purpose, you say something that is generated a laugh. And that's kind of intoxicating. You'll like it. But stand-up comedy is not what I left my house to do. So you have to resist the urge to the roar of the crowd and the love of the people. I think if you're going to seriously get get involved in political activism, um, I, I don't know people that I think have really effectively done that. I mean, you can be a great fundraiser. And that, you can draw attention to something. You can raise funds for something. That That's fine. But I find that um, it, it gets hard to maintain the line between the focus on I, I, me, me, 
in really what you're there for, which is some sort of advocacy, you know, collective advocacy. So, um, I mean, just talking about politics, it's not the same as doing politics. If you take somebody like Jack Grisham from TSOL, who actually ran for political office, or, you know, uh, Joey Keeley, who actually, I think, has attained political office up in Canada, now that's that's walking it like you're talking, you know. Uh, but they didn't need to write a single song to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Well, growing up in New York, do you feel like the culture around you was a blessing or a curse? And how do you think it affected you in the long run? Uh, it, it was probably, a, uh, to hear me tell it, it would probably you'd probably hear me say or feel very much like it was a blessing. Um, but you'd have to talk to people around me who would say, well, you know, this singular man's level of paranoia is uh, <laughs> probably makes his life harder and not easier. But, uh, you know, what does that mean? It means before I put a key in any lock, I wait a beat and look behind me because of, you know, the rash of pushing robberies that were big in 76 or 77. You know, it means I'm not all the social distancing that people now are feeling put upon by. is something I've been doing for a long time. I don't like people standing too close to me or, you know, it's just, uh, I, uh, paranoia, like, you know, <laughs> Manson once said, is, is just a different type of awareness. And, uh, the awareness is that people are not always at their best and you should plan accordingly. So I, I I'd say it, it was a blessing. And it was also, I find it one of the more racially comfortable states in America in actual fact. So, and that's not doesn't say that's it. not it's not with, without problems, but um, I found it was a good place to grow up. What led your way out west? Uh, I came out to go to school to college. So when you started Whipping Boy, do you think audiences were receptive to the new sound when you were working it out live on albums such as Muru Muru? Um, that, that's a weird thing. I mean, that's why we went ahead and made Muru Muru because mixed in with the straight up hardcore stuff. Um, it always had, it always had a, a really, um, it was a positive reception. This was the phrase that I, that I was looking for. Um, so I think what was disorienting the people, what couldn't have been the songs themselves, but I think we were getting more conversant with the things that you could do in the studio. So if I'm remembering correctly on Muru Muru, there were, you know, there were a lot of Foley noises like in movies, like dripping water and doors squeaking and stuff that became, you know, par for the course for a lot of the early Oxbow stuff. But, you know, back in probably 82, 83, it just sounded like, what the, the, what the, what the fuck are these guys doing? And we had, uh, somebody had brought back some toy from Japan that looked like a bee and it had a rope, a string on it, and you swung it around, and it created this kind of pretty phenomenal. It was like just a piece of wood in a rubber band, phenomenal buzzing sound. And so we just kind of mixed all that stuff in there, and it just, it, you know, it just people's they, they were expecting, you know, what the people, what the people, what the people, and it was just not that. So um, still one of my favorite records, though. Was there a particular audience that really grasped to this new sound? I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, you got to understand, in those days, this, this is the way it worked. We sold, say, 2,500 The Sound of No Hands Clapping, right? So that was a standard that was set. So the new record's coming out. I called all the distributors. I called Systematic Jam, Dutch East India, Subterranean. I'm surprised I can remember half these names. And Rough Trade, and Rough Trade said, great. Based on Sound of No Hands Clapping, you know, you should bring by 150. So I didn't, I didn't have the whipping boy van was down or something, put 150 in a duffel bag, put the duffel bag on my back, got on my motorcycle, drove up to San Francisco, 6th Street or where, I think they were on 6th Street, and I dropped them off. By the time I got back to, to, to Palo Alto, which is about a 30-minute drive, uh, for those who don't know, uh, my get into my house, the answering machine was like, yeah, great. Hey, you know, we don't think we're going to be able to sell 150. So if you could come back and get the rest, that would be great. And I go, <laughs> well, you know, Steve, it's subterranean wants some. Um, uh, how many should I tell him that they're coming? And they're like, 125. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that was the first time that, that there was going to be trouble in paradise. But, you know, the thing is, I don't, I don't, I have zero regrets about that because 
any other way would have been unacceptable to me, right? Those are the songs that we wanted to do. So it's not like, it's not like I had any interest in doing any other songs or more songs like the first record, uh, you know, and that's, I remember at one point talking to Fat Mike from, um, I think that's his name, right? Yeah. The, the label guy? Yeah. And, uh, and he, it, yeah, I was trying to introduce him to Oxbow for, we were looking, as always, we're looking for labels. And he's like, yeah, man, it's just not hardcore or not. I was like, this is like the very essence of hardcore. And that was the first time it kind of dawned on me that hardcore had, you know, had become this thing. It had become a real genre of which nobody, you know, even though I would consider TSL, TSOL hardcore in this new genre-bound definition of hardcore, TSOL would not have been considered hardcore. So I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's cool. You know, you guys do what you got to do. And, you know, I still, I'm friends with, you know, last time Agnostic Front came out here to the show. And I mean, I know these guys forever. So it was nice to see me and I enjoyed, enjoyed the fuck out of the show. It's because they have a sense of, of what it was originally. You know, I'm not going to see neo-hardcore bands. Like, I'm not, I, I'm like, why would I do that? There's, a, there's one other band, Scatterbox, who I like with that guy Scott Roselle in it. And it was clear that, though he's way younger than I am, but that he has a real good sense of the spirit of early 80s hardcore. But, you know, whatever. God love you. Make music. It's better than sitting at home playing video games. Well, I don't even say video games. It's just better than sitting at home doing nothing. How about that? Yeah, well, the, the Whipping Boys weren't even supposed to play their first show. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that was, we showed up at the farm and to see uh, uh, the Circle Jerks and playing support with the Effigies. I remember looking and said, man, this is a big crowd. This is going to be an all right show. So we should have played this show. And in a bit of magical thinking, like I'm sometimes prone to, I was like, hey, we're all here. Why don't we fucking play this show? And now, you know, analyzing it, I kind of, I didn't realize that a large part of it probably had to do with the fact that Steve was, you know, six foot six and about 275 pounds. And so I go up and say, hey, man, hey, our whole band is here. Why don't you say you, we let us play a few songs before... Uh, before the circle jerks go on, <laughs> and I didn't understand. I, I, I didn't understand that it might have seemed threatening, you know. I mean, with me and Steve both asking this, and uh, he said, "Well, the promoter was like, fuck it. I don't.' He didn't have security there, so I guess he was like, screw it, I'll deal." He goes, "Well, if it's all right with the other bands, so we'll go to the effigy. So guys don't mind we do a few songs after." They go, "We don't give a shit." And I go to keep the circle jerks. Go, hey man, why don't can, can we do three songs before you guys start? And he was like, sure, if you can't use our equipment. And I was like, nah. I go back to the effigies. Effigies go, yeah, sure, go ahead. <laughs> and so we start go going out on stage, and the, the announcer was like, oh, what the fuck? Okay, next up from L.A., those circle jerks. And we start playing it <laughs> I mean, right away. I don't look anything at all like Keith, you know. So <laughs> people were throwing, throwing garbage and, like, screaming. And I was like, ah, fuck you, fuck you, you suck, fuck you. It was really pretty great. And at that show is when Klaus uh, and, and Darren uh, Poligro came up to me and said, who the, f who the fuck are you, you know? And I was friends with Klaus's ex-wife in New York, and I was like, Ah, man, I've been looking for you, you know. Lorraine says to say hi, you know, so that was the beginning of that uh, of that friendship, so. Well, if I'm correct, Oxbow wasn't expected to be anything more than a little bit of studio work. Was it after the positive review of the album Fuckfest that you thought, well, maybe this could become something a whole lot more? Well, I, I, I've said it before, so, but at the risk of boring people, I, it was initially designed as kind of an oral suicide note uh, i was heavily depressed about something and uh and you know in a young person's uh, fit of peak i said i'm gonna i'm gonna fucking make a record that's in the music in my head so that when i no longer live on this earthly plane that people will understand what they're missed and so i said i want to make this record called fuck fest and, you know, about about the world where everybody gets fucked over and gets fucked out of anything that makes life worth living. And uh, I was living in the house by some railroad tracks where people then and now still routinely kill themselves. The guy in the house is a guy, Bart Thurber, who uh, had a mini studio in his house. And I said, I want to do something. I want to do something. And so I put down some drum tracks 
and um, and I think I even put some bass things on. And it was pretty clear to me that <laughs> that that <laughs> that while it was painstaking work me doing it all alone because I'm not. I played a little violin when I was a kid, a little keyboard, a little bass. That it was going to be, I could either do a vocal thing with lyrics, or I could. So I asked Nico, who was uh, the former guitar player for Grim Reality, um, and then became a guitar player in Whipping Boy. I asked him to help me with it, and so we sat in my garage. I lived in a garage at the time. We sat in the garage and came up with the music. I kind of had these notes about what I wanted the music to sound like. I had the songs and I had the lyrics. And we wrote and recorded it in the garage, and that was Fluckfest. And, you know, when it was done, my attitude was, well, you know, with this I am well pleased and released the record. Rough Trade took some, and there was a guy named Daryl in London who saw the record and said the other name was funny and got it and was like, this is great. And he gave it to this guy named Kevin Martin, who had just started a record label called... Uh, Oh, Jesus Christ, how can I forget? Uh, pathological, Pathological Records. And they emailed us, or not emailed, there was no email there. He wrote us, <laughs> wrote, us a, wrote, it, wrote us a letter and talked about how excited he was about the record and he wanted us to go to London. And I think the thought process at the time was, you know, I've never been to London, and before I die, I'd like to go. So maybe I'll kill myself after we go to London. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we went to London and played this big show at the Union Tavern with a Terminal Cheesecake, played support, and I can't remember who, who opened the show, but it was packed out, and there were journalists there from NME and Sounds, and uh, it was, by all accounts, a pretty successful show. And then we did an in-store at Rough Trade, and that was also well-received. And then they said, well, Pathological wants to put out the record. And they put out the record. And, I mean, it all, I guess that's what saved my life, maybe, right? Well, would you say that the emotion behind the album is what you think resonated so much with audiences? Yeah, I don't think it sounded like anything else at the time. I mean, in the early days, people would compare it to, like, the Butthole Surfers or, or the Melvins or Jesus Lizard. But it was really, it was, you know, it's only, and you look back on it and people can see that it was really nothing. That was just a language that people had to try to describe it back then. But if you look at back over seven or eight records, you can see that it was really not, nothing like any of those others um, for good or ill. I, I love those bands, but that's not what was going on in my head. I would like to think that it was... Um, it was the quality of voice. I mean, you know, after being a whipping boy for a long time where, you know, started out doing genre music, you know, very specifically, I want to do hardcore music. I want to be in a hardcore band. And then, you know, mutating into, you know, kind of a weird post-punk rock and roll thing and, or the metal-inflected, you know, Third Secret of Fatima. I just clearly wanted to do the music in my head. I remember telling Biafra that at one point. And he goes, well, what are you doing next? He goes, I want to do this record that, you know, is the music in my head. And Beyonce said, well, that's what we all want to do, I guess, right? And I was like, well, do we? <laughs> I can't imagine that the music in my head is super unique, but apparently it turns out that it sort of was. I mean, I didn't expect anybody to like it, but it seemed to be that people were ready for something that, you know, were ready for one truthful statement, right? not an attempt to appeal or to, you know, seduce or not. They were just, I, you know, that record was just me making that statement. And one that I thought needed to be made before I left this earth. So. Well, what was it like to work with Steve Albini on Let Me Be a Woman in Serenade in Red? I would say this was the most important time for him as a producer. So what was it like working with him when he was being held in such high regard at the time? Um, it was, it was pretty, uh, phenomenal. And I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed him well before then as a, uh, as a writer. And this is what made it make sense to me before I ever heard big black, um, to, to any great degree or listen to shellac or, you know, rape man, or I, I was an avid reader of his, um, and I thought what he had done in a pretty clever way was there had been this kind of whole anti-intellectual 
kind of strain, you know, uh, where you have like Joe Strummer, who was the son of a international diplomat, but, you know, trying to come across like a, I don't want to say trying, I would say, you know, basically embracing kind of Cockney street kid thing for good or for ill. Um, I don't want to say it was shtick, it's just what he did, you know, whether it's the antecedent was, you know, Mick Jagger going, I ain't got no, I'm pretty sure, you know, Jagger went home his parents, he was there. I, I, I ain't got no. He was, you know, it was part of a part of a thing. I mean, maybe it was an homage to to the old blues guys, the original rock and rock and rock and rollers. So Albini was was the first person who was un un unreconstructed. I mean, he was as he was. His stuff was smart. Uh, it was funny. It um, acerbic and. Uh, made no attempts to conceal his intelligence at all, um, and, which I thought was a pretty uncompromising, you know, um, pretty uncompromising stand, you know. Um, he, again, was as he seemed to be. He went to, I think he went to Northwestern, I, I can't remember, and he had been a journalist for at Northwestern, and he, you know, the writing was great, word choice was great, he was routinely funny, um, and, and I knew he was friends with the guys at forced exposure because that's where I read his stuff. And my understanding at the time was that, um, the guys at forced exposure were not fans of whipping boy because they thought we were dummies or whatever. I, you know, who knows? This is old, old news. So at one point after Fuckfest had come out and then King of the Jews had come out, I went to check the mail like I still do from the same mailbox, which I still have. And I had a postcard with horses on it. And it, and it, it said a cowboy's prayer. And on, on the back was a, a note from a letter from something about um, a couple of times I heard it on the radio and I wondered how, 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 how that many sounds were put on this, on this great little record. Um, something to the effect of just thought, just thought I would let you know, signed Steve Albini in a phone number. And, of course, if you've been in the hole long enough, you know, you, you are not, in general, receptive to people trying to help you in the hole. So I think I sat on this postcard for a couple of days. Like, I was like, what, what is it? What, so what? what? So he's just, what, he's, what, he's telling me he likes it? That, what? He's telling me he likes it. Was that? Oh, 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 I see. Oh, he likes it now. Like, he's making fun of you know, me, like Joe Pesci <laughs> and Goodfellas. Oh, he's making fun of me or not. And then, so I think I showed Nico, and Nico goes, it's just, it's simple. Just call. And I was like, okay, all right, all right. Maybe, maybe there's no real intent. Maybe this is a positive thing. So I call the number on the back, and I say, hey, this is Eugene from Oxbow. I just got this postcard. It's great. And he's like, yeah. And he starts telling me how he discovered the record. He heard it on the radio. He went to a store. He bought it. And he just, well, how many tracks did you say? It was a 16-track recording. Because that's great. I don't know how you got that many sounds on it. And I said, well, there's one way to find out. You know, we're going to record another one. Would you be interested in doing it? And he was like, yeah. And that was that. <laughs> you know, at the time, there were no credits on Fuckfest or King of the Jews because I saw that lazy music journalists would in, inevitably when you were in one band and quit being in that band and started another band, they would try to draw a through line to show people how much they knew. I mean, justifiably, maybe it was a good history lesson. You know, this person used to be in this band, now they're in this band. So I wanted no credits on it because I, I wanted the record to, to be heard on its own merits and not like, these are the guys who used to be in a hardcore band, so if you like that, you'll like this. Fuck that. And uh, so the whole time I thought, well, he's friends with Byron Coley and the, the other cats at Forced Exposure who don't hold Whipping Boy in high regard. He has probably no idea who we are. He just liked the record perfect. And it wasn't until we're in the middle of recording um, uh, Let Me Be a Woman that he revealed not only did he know that we were the guys from Whipping Boy, but he had actually seen Whipping Boy and spoke to me at a Whipping Boy show, <laughs> which I just didn't remember at all. I, I didn't remember at all. So my whole idea of like hiding in plain sight didn't really work. But uh, he, he's uh, he's actually one of my one of my favorite people. I mean, he would be surprised to maybe hear me say this because it's not like I do anything to to evince this. But he uh, is one of my favorite people. It's not like I call him every day just to chat. But I really enjoyed working with him, and 
Him and strangely enough, Tom Mallon, who did the first Whippin' Boy record, who used to drum for American Music Club and was also in that band Negative Trend. Just guys who I really like. I've always enjoyed my time with them. Well, whose idea was it to bring in Marianne Faithful for Serenade in Red? Uh, that was my idea. Um, well in advance of Metallica having the same idea. And, <laughs> and this is when I started to, 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 to lose interest in Metallica when they asked him on some MTV show where they got the idea, and they both froze up. I think it was uh, uh, Lars and, and Hetfield. And so oh, it was our manager's idea. I said, oh, your manager who's friends with our bass player from high school? You mean that manager? Come on, man. A little bone would have been nice, just to throw a little bone. But I got strange weather. Uh, I used to have a store, a record, a record tape, T-shirt, video, uh, gun store, <laughs> tattoo parlor, gun store in Palo Alto. And uh, one of the things I had to sell was strange weather nobody bought it it was just sitting there and one day i started playing it and i got obsessed with it and played nothing but i go oh man for the narcotic story she 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 or, i'm sorry for uh Serena ridge she's she's got to be on it so in those days typically you wrote or called and so i wrote and called and uh she agreed so well were there any strides made to have david bowie work on uh oxbow's thin black duke album yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we could go back a little bit um, and, because, of course, Joe Ciccarelli was the one who produced uh, Narcotic Story, and I thought, well, if you're going to have a record called Narcotic Story, you got to have Lou Reed on it. And so in, I was editor-in-chief of uh, uh, EQ Magazine, the recording magazine at the time, and completely accidentally, Lou Reed's bass player was emailing me about something, and we were working on and I was like, ah, oh, man, that's, you know, you, well, I'm doing this record. You guys should be. And he was sort of into the idea. And um, because EQ was a magazine for producers, um, I had access to Tony Visconti. And I mentioned to Visconti. And he was, uh, or, no, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm confused. I talked to Lou Reed's bass player. He was into it. And then I talked to Ciccarelli. And Ciccarelli goes, oh, I'm going to see Lou. And I'm going to mention it to him. And so we had actually set it up where Lou was supposed to participate in some way, shape, or form for a narcotic story. And then the day, like that week, he was like, fuck it, don't feel like doing it. And then it never happened. Um, and, you know, which I didn't I didn't mind because, of course, you know, this has happened before. Like the first time Marion tried to get in, they brought up the heroin bust and she couldn't get in the country, so she had the immigration center back and then you know yeah i mean it was just i figured well lou reese he'll be back and then he did this this record with uh metallica again somehow metallica <laughs> up in our mix and then he then he died which was all right because after working with metallica we wouldn't have done it with him anyway but with uh with with thin black duke um it was uh, uh chicarelli uh, produced it again but I had been in touch from EQ days with Tony Visconti, and I said, naturally, if the record's called Thin Black Two, you gotta you gotta have Bowie on it. And so, um, you know, of course, um, first of all, Thin Black Duke took ten years to do, so it wasn't like it was his death was part of the picture at least initially. Um, but uh, Visconti and I, he and I have friends in common. So I hadn't really tugged on their coats because I figured this guy, he would be, you know, uh, he would an aider and a better. And it just, you know, just it just never happened. So I don't know that I don't know that boy ever heard our stuff at all. Uh, but and then Joe was pushing from his side, and of course by the time Joe started pushing from his side, I think Boy was already sick and was backing off of doing stuff with anybody. And he didn't really do a lot of stuff with anybody anyway. But of course, I think he would have done it, done it with and with us for sure. Well, when you first started a tour, were there any acts that really inspired you to push your sound even further? Contemporaries, no, no. I mean, honest to God, I, there are a lot of people who I really liked. I mean, we played with. I'm sure the guys in the Melvins would be surprised to hear me say this, uh, because I guess the first time we played with them, our drummer at the time. <laughs> And, uh, to his character, was talking mad shit about Buzz in the dressing room, right as Buzz walked in, you know. And, and uh, as a kid of divorce like I am, 
I could have tried to explain that that's just the way the drummer was, and the, 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 you know, I'm a huge fan. Please excuse him. But I was like, man, it is what it is. Yeah, you know, if I if it was me walking in, I would be like, what are you talking about? And I would have just not in a threatening way. I just would have asked, you know. So, um, but I, I I've been a fan of theirs, and increasingly now, courtesy of Shuffle. Like every time a song comes, I go, my God, this is great. Who is it? Inevitably, it's either you know the Melvins or Harvey Milk. Um, so uh, I, I I enjoy them quite a bit. But inspired by pushing it further, I don't know. There there are no contemporaries that have inspired me. Like I, I was telling my wife recently, uh, well, recently, like as of two days ago, about what a big influence. Uh, I would healthily I say it, and nobody believes me. They always think I'm joking. But Little Richard was a huge influence um, on me. Um, but I'm sure, like, <laughs> everybody owes <laughs> massive amounts of debt owed to this guy from anybody making rock music these days. But but contemporaries, no. no, no, no. And we played with a lot of people, so it, um, I've appreciated them all, from, you know, Jesus Lizard to Scratch Acid to the Melvins to Converge to, yeah, and Neurosis to... Um, but these were always felt like fellow travelers, not like people who I looked at and go, I got to do more of that. I mean, there, there's a period of time when I was in, embracing, like there's a great, somebody had a great photo and he said, you see, did you see you in the photo? And I didn't even see me in the photo. And it was a Reagan youth show and Dave Insurgent was, uh, singing and you see me like I'm on stage, like out of in the wing, sitting on a stack of equipment or something and I'm watching him play and it's clearly it's not somebody who's just like grooving or rocking out to the band yeah, I mean I know me well enough to know that I was watching and analyzing the effectiveness of his performance <laughs> yeah no and and so I'm sure I had moments like that periodically like where it was purely analytical like why, or why does Picasso's why does this painting work like like it, it, it works. People, it's not just because people say it works. It actually works. So like, why does it work? Um, but with Oxbow, I didn't have, I didn't have any, I, I, there was one person that had a major effect on what I did with Oxbow. And that person was not a musician at all. And that was Simon Reynolds. And he was at that Union Tavern show. And he wrote a review in which he, he said, I love this band on record. But the live show employs, there's a phrase he used that I took to heart, and he goes, ham theatricality. And I was like, huh. And, of course, this is really probably the last Whipping Boy show, and that was apropos to describe Whipping Boy, which was a victim of, I'm standing in front of a mic, I should do something entertaining. And at that point on, I decided that I would never read another review like that about myself on stage and all. In other words... If I didn't really, couldn't find a place where I really meant it, then I shouldn't do it. I should just stop and do something else. And uh, and so I never did. I fundamentally said, you know, like automatic writing, when people were trying to reestablish contact with the dead, and they would put a piece of paper on the table in their hand, and they would have a seance and try to channel the spirits of the dead, and their hand would automatically start writing. And I said, I'm going to stand in front of that microphone, and I'm going to let the lyrics and the music dictate what happens then. And the first real Oxbow show I did after that was probably completely terrifying for people. And it, um, it, it, it really set the stage for the live show had become what the music always was, something that was from inside my head, done without expectation that anybody would like it, and whether they liked it or not wasn't really the point, right? Well, you're such a visual front man. <clears throat> Excuse me. Did film and performance ever play a big part in your life? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, my 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 father, from whom which I am estranged, actually is a professor. But part of getting his PhD was to make a film, which I always thought was um, you know really cool. And I think as a way to establish contact with him, I'd always been you know into into film. Like I mean, like a, like checking out like I, you know he would tell me yeah you should see this movie you should see you know Kurosawa you should see you know so I've been a big a big fan of film for for a long time and Joseph Lucy who made probably one of my favorite movies of all time The Servant 
Um, I think I discovered that when I was 20, um, or 21. Um, it's been, it was, it was a huge part. It was a, a huge, huge, huge part of how I thought about music. I remember once, and somebody else, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, helped me with my writing. I said, hey, I want to read something to you. And uh, he and Alan Ginsberg, the first time I'd met them, um, and I read this thing to them, and he kind of grimaced, and he said to me, he goes, listen, you need to write this stuff with an eye toward the fact that it will be spoken aloud. And I think that was probably the singular best writing advice I'd ever I'd ever been given because there are words that you use when you speak that if you're impressed with the fact that you're a writer, that you would never write. Alternatively, if you wrote them, you would never speak them, but they should be a one-to-one relationship. And with movies and music, it was the same thing. So it uh, I, I, it's a simplified language in movies that your music should be able to match one-to-one um, so yeah, I would find writers and filmmakers probably more readily influenced me with Oxbow than other bands for sure. You'd have to talk to Nico. I mean, it was pretty clear from the beginning that you know uh, <laughs> that I wasn't going to be making the musical portion of Oxbow happen. But I could tell Nico about the music that was in my head, and he got closer than any other human I'd made music with before. So that was really pretty perfect. Well, good or bad, was there ever a holy shit moment for you on stage? Oh, yeah, I, I have several. We played the Door Festival in Belgium, right? and I'd never been to a really big festival before, and um, I didn't realize that things at a festival were based on schedule. I just thought, oh, it's a big fairground, and there are a bunch of tents, and it's like a club. So this is the club. So we go to the tent that we're going to play in. And it's a huge tent, right? It probably holds, you know, it probably holds a thousand people. And uh, we, the band playing before us, is a, they were a band, a Dutch band, and I don't need to mention their names. And if you have 60 people in a space that holds a thousand people, it feels really dire. And there's a photograph, actually, I think it's up on the Oxbow site, where I'm back, I said, oh my God. Okay, I gotta get through this, and I go and sit behind the curtain, and it's before the show. Then I got a look on my face, like I gotta get through this. And uh, they say, okay, you know, you know, you guys need to go on. And so I come from behind the curtain, and I don't look at the audience because I just, I just can't, I just can't, right? I just can't, I can't, I can't deal with the fact that I've flown three, six thousand miles to play in front of sixty people. I could have stayed home, you know. And so I just walked straight out to the mic. Um, you know, I turn and face the drummer. I think I had my bag with me. I dropped my bag by the bass drum and I turn around to the mic and I see a thousand people there. And I was like, oh shit. Like I didn't hear, I couldn't hear them because they were deathly quiet. And two, you know, I had the tape over my ears and uh, that was like, my God, where, how did, the, what? <laughs> and then somebody later told me, no, no, oh, the, the, when, where the bands are and the times they are are on the schedule. People just follow the schedule for the bands they want to see. So that was, that was a, a pretty serious whole, holy shit moment, you know? Um, and, uh, and then there are other times I've looked out, like when we played in Japan, you know, and everybody in the audience was crying. And I remember thinking like, oh, wow and i put my hands to my face and i and i was crying and i was like man what was that line from that song you know i want to make you feel the way you make me feel i go this was you know <laughs> the, the the minister and the congregation were of a single mind or emotion at that point so that was another holy shit moment that was so from tokyo to 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 brussels you know two holy shit moments well, did you ever receive any feedback from Iggy Pop after opening for him with your band Blackface? That never happened. That never happened. Um, because Chuck uh, decided that he, he, at first, he didn't want to do it. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I, you know, I did, 
it's like if somebody doesn't want to have sex with you, I've never been the one to ask why, why, why. It's, I know all I need to know at that point. So he, you know, he came up with, he just said, I'm not feeling it. And I go, okay. And he tried to explain. I go, man, you don't have to explain a single thing to me. I mean, he said, ah, we're not ready. And we drove down there, we rehearsed a bunch. He said, ah, they're not paying enough money. And I said, well, okay, tell you what, we'll give you $19,000 to open for Iggy at this thing. And I said, hey, man, they're going to give us $19,000 and pay for airfare. And he's like, oh, okay. So I took care of the money thing. And then finally he was just like, you know, maybe my wife could, you know, sing a few songs with us. I go, well, she's not in the band, man. But, you know, she could sell merch. I, and he's like, ah. and then, you know, he said, I'm not feeling it. I go, okay, all right. Well, you've been associated with a lot of bands. Are any of those 100% dead and buried, or is there always an opportunity for them to come back? Mm, well, uh, blackface will never happen again. Um, um, and, and not because of a lack of interest on my part, um, but what happened with the whole black flag thing post-blackface was just... <laughs> the, I don't think you could... There's nothing that would induce me to walk across the street and jump into that flaming dumpster. There's just no point, you know. <laughs> it's just like no, seriously, no point. I don't, uh, you know, I some hardcore cats, man, who just dead set on destroying their legacy. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Uh, I mean, the thing is, I've never owned, uh, I've never owned any like hardcore apparel. And now that I'm in my dotage, I'm like, man, I've always wanted to own an SSD shirt. So I talked to Nancy, you know, uh, Al, Burrell's wife, and she said, oh, I got to send me a T-shirt and sweatshirt. That's kind of cool, you know. And I uh, went to see Agnostic Front, and I said, man, I, never, I bought the Agnostic Front shirt. And the, the, the third shirt that I always wanted to have, but that I never did ever in the old days, was a black flag shirt. And I, but I just went to try to buy one, and I just couldn't do it, man. It was just, you know, whether it's Greg Ginn doing that ter uh, the video recently of him playing, <laughs> not even a, a year ago. It was just, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they did some pretty phenomenal things in their day, but I just can't. I just can't. How, how, how could you do that? I mean, and this is without anybody committing a capital crime. Like, I've liked people, and then they commit crimes, and then I'm like, ah, man, I can't. I can't. Dude, rape this chick. I can't. You know, usually it's it's with fighters, right? Because I'm into MMA, but I just can't. I was a fan. Now I can't be a fan anymore. But Black Flag didn't do anything except just be absolutely nutty. And that's one thing I realized. These guys weren't acting like they were crazy. They were like really crazy, man. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, God love him. I, I have nothing bad to say about Greg Ginn. He's always been, I know he's, a lot of people have accused him of ripping them off. Oxford always got paid by SST, and he was—he personally has always been nice to me. I love Chuck, always been nice to me. Um, you know, they got the Henry, he's always been nice to me. Nice, I got nothing but Dez, great guy, always been nice to me. But just, you know, what they did with their legacy... Uh, well, I don't know, man. Who knows? I I, I find myself just sad. And if they come on, if, they're, if the music is playing, I'm still like, oh yeah. And then after doing my my time with Blackface and Chuck, I realized how incredibly difficult some of those songs were to sing, which most people don't realize. Um, but I really wish they hadn't have willfully destroyed a memory. <laughs> Do you think that they're the one band that destroyed? their legacy the most of the hardcore scene? Outside of Black Flag, no. <laughs> I really can't think of... I mean, I didn't like the latter-day Dead Kennedys stuff. Um, like when, you know, Biafra was just like, you know... I mean, what made that band work were tensions, you know, between Rage kind of surf stuff, and, you know, Klaus produced, um, you know, two Whipping Boy records... So I knew he had a lot of musical depth and his records could have been interesting, but Biafra just made them what they were. So from, you know, Frank and Christ, outside of them getting, having to go to court for it, you know, those weren't very interesting records. And, uh, but destroyed, I would not use that word destroyed. Nobody destroyed it like Black Flag destroyed it. 
you know, so whether it was Black Flag or Flag or Off or I just, it was just, a, it was just a lot of, oh man. I mean, if you could think of a bigger, bigger dumpster fire, I'd like to know, but I just, I have not seen it. I've not seen it. It still blows my mind. I mean, just from the point of view, how do you go from having these iconic, like world famous covers to the cover of what the, you know, with the like mo- the vomiting molecule on the cover? I don't even know. If you're, I don't. How do you go to, to fire Ron Reyes on stage? You know, Mike Vallely on stage. And while I like Mike Vallely as a, as a skateboarder. I'm, I, I, I don't don't even get me started, man. I just can't. I can't think of a single band that has done more. I mean, the Bad Brains um, have self have, have pretty effectively and routinely self self sabotage themselves. We all know that they could have been huger than they were, but for and then of course you see the documentary and you see okay, well HR was bipolar, man. It's, Shit, that's what happens, right? So, well, do, you, do you just think it's a DC thing? <laughs> well, no, because Black Flag was from LA, and you know the Bad Brains are from DC. I, you know, I just no, I think it was the fact that HR was bipolar. I mean, I was talking to Daryl, and he was saying, "Hey, I, we can go on tour again, but I will never fly in the same plane as as HR." And then he done some stuff after nine eleven, like wore all of his clothes. Like on the plane, at, I mean, he was suffering. You know, he was mentally mentally ill, um, and of course, got everybody pulled off the plane. And you know, um, or you know, open. I mean, people forget. I think they opened up for. They were on the Madonna tour, right? So Madonna, Beastie Boys, and the Bad Brains, and then they punched somebody in the face backstage. It got thrown off the tour. I mean, this is just a, a special kind of self sabotage. But I think nobody did it like Black Flag did it, you know. I mean, and as recently, you know, <laughs> I mean, this whole what the thing and the Mike Vallely thing, that was like three years ago. It's not that long ago. Well, when did you first become aware that you were on the back of SSD's Power Album? Oh, early early on. Uh, Springer's brother told me, I got this great photograph of you. And uh, he was like, ah, send it to me. But this is before email, you know. So it was like, he may have mailed it. Maybe he did it. And uh, and then somebody from, I think, I think the first person to point it out to me was maybe one of the cats from Hydrahead. Like, hey, man, is that you? I go, my God, hey, look at that. And then, of course, Drew Stone and the Hardcore Chronicles. And, the, you know, he the poster, he used the poster from, that's, that's, that uh, ends up being a pretty iconic photograph. It's all over the place. I like it. That was a great show. There's a riot immediately after that show. <laughs> well, finally, would you say it was radio or the records in your household that were the first taste of music in your life? And what were some of your earliest influences, other than Little Richard? Oh, it, um, records. My mother gave me a, a record player. And she gave me some 45s, what nowadays people would call seven inches. And she gave me four records. And she said, I'm going to teach you how to use it. And if you, if, you're, if you treat it well, I'll let you have it. And you can play music. If you break it up, I'm going to take it away and you'll never have it. So I said, okay. No, she showed me how to use it. And it was Ray Charles. Uh, Busted was on one side. Elvis. Um... James Brown, and the fourth one, fourth one was "I Want to Hold Your Hand," the Beatles, the Capitol Records record. So, those are the four records I had that I and I'm talking. I lived at this in this place called Ozone Park then in Queens. So this is before the age of five. So anywhere from three, three to five is when I had these records and I played them over and over and over and over again. So, thank you so much, Eugene, for sitting down with me tonight. Uh, do you have anything coming down the pipe with Oxbow or any other bands? Any tours post-COVID? Yeah. Um, well, uh, Nico is having his second kid in August, and I am actually having my fourth kid in August. And uh, so we hadn't planned to do anything for a short bit of order. Uh, vocals have been tentatively, tentatively scheduled July 9th, 10th, and 11th uh, up here in Oakland. 
Um, we'll see if uh, things have opened up in time for me to do vocals. But I don't anticipate um, things happening tour-wise until the end of 2021. And Boone Well, which is probably the most significant other side project I have, um, it has their third record coming out around the same time, So, uh, which is specifically end of 2021. So what we'll do, we'll do vocals in July. You probably mix the record, work on artwork, and since it's become something that we decided that we like quite a bit, we will um, start making videos for it. I realized that that was a necessary portion of the equation when my youngest kid would say to me, hey, Dad, I want to show you this new song. She never said, I want you to listen to this new song. I want to show you. <laughs> I said, well, let's give it a try. We'll see if we, if, if, it, if we find it entertaining or miserable. And at first, we, we had a kind of an asshole guy show up and you know, we said, we don't have a lot of money. And the guy was like, yeah, yeah, I got this special camera, yada, yada, yada. And then he then it got weird around the money. It was like, I was very frank with you from the outset, man. I wasn't lying. Why do we have to go through this? But then I found this cat from England, and I just said, hey, we'll give you airfare. You can stay with me. We'll pay for you to eat. And that's all we got. we we'll just do a video. And the guy said, fucking cool. We'll take it. He'd never been on an airplane before. Flew here, found him, picked him up. He made uh, a video for a cold and well-lit place, and um, we had a great time making it. So we made, I think, four videos for Tim Black Duke and for this next record, which is tentatively called Love's Holiday. Uh, we intend to make uh, make uh, at least as many videos for it. So that's what we'll do for the earlier part of 2021 and you know, start touring on it. December 2021, early 2022. I mean, Oxbow thinks in large terms. It took 10 years for them like Duke to come out, so clearly we're not concerned with months and weeks. COVID, everybody who's going to die from COVID should have died by 2022, sadly, <laughs> sadly, sadly enough. <laughs> you know, so. Well, congratulations on your child, and we all look forward to hearing and seeing the new album and videos. Thank you again so much, Eugene. Uh, all right, cool. All right, Matt, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you for listening. It's the perfect time to go revisit all of Eugene's previous works and make sure to go pick up the new albums and check out Oxbow and Eugene Robinson live in 2021 or whenever you get the chance. You're not going to regret it. It is one of the most exciting shows on the planet. This concludes our broadcast day.